The Bible is full of colorful characters that many of us learned about as children. But there's a lot that sing-alongs and felt boards can't really teach us about these characters. After all, these are people that really lived and died. People that really failed and triumphed, learned and listened, doubted and believed. Let's dig into these stories together, trusting that they've been passed down to us for the same reason these ancient people lived through them, to develop some character of our own. I'm one of your pastors here, and I'm very excited to be closing out our character series today. So thank you guys for being here. I think we have something really beautiful to learn today. So this is good. Um, so we'll start with our guessing game as usual, like we do in character. I, I don't know. I, I feel like you guys can get this one. This is, well, I don't know. All right. My first clue for my character, those of you who know, don't say. My first clue is that this character was a peacemaker. A peacemaker. Does anyone have a guess? I know there's a lot of peacemakers in the Bible. I'll give you the second clue. This character interacted with David. David. King David. He was not a king at the time. Anyone? Anyone? Jonathan is a good guess, but nope, not Jonathan. Abigail. Yes, we got it. We didn't even get to the third clue, which was that she was a woman. Glad we didn't have to go there. All right. Abigail. Abigail is our character for the day. And Abigail is a peacemaker. Abigail, the woman who saved her family, her lands, her whole community from destruction by speaking peace to an enemy. So we're going to hear about her story today and talk about peacemaking. But why is this character trait of peacemaking an important thing to talk about? Obviously, Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God, right? So that sounds like reason enough to study peacemaking, right? And as we look at the life of Jesus, we see the theme of peace over and over again, right? He's the prince of peace. He speaks peace. He is peace. And so peace seems like an important topic to discuss. But the first question of the day is, where does this concept of peace really come from? What does peace mean? really mean. In the scripture, peace comes from a Hebrew word. You guys know what it is? Anyone? Uh-huh, I heard it. I don't know who whispered it. Shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And while I would love to tell you about it, I have an excellent video that's going to tell you about it even better than I could. So we're going to roll this three-minute video to learn about the word shalom and the meaning of being a peacemaker. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. 
The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. All right. This concept of peace. Sometimes I think we miss the full scope of what it really means, of what shalom really means when we're praying for it, when we're looking for it in the one true narrative of, of redemption. It is this concept of wholeness, of wholeness. Does that idea do something unsettling in your soul, like in a good way, like in a good hopeful way? Because if it doesn't, I would encourage you to think on it a bit longer. What would it feel like for the broken things in your life, in your community, in your world to be whole? To be whole. Because that is the shalom that Jesus came to bring to us and to our world, right? That's God's intention for us. And that's what he promises in the end of all things, wholeness. So what is this peacemaking then? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? I think it means the work of restoration, the work of wholeness, right? It's what the prophets pointed to. It's what Jesus did. It's what the early church was taught to do, called to do. And it's the calling on each of our lives. As Christ followers, the calling on our lives is to participate in that work of wholeness and that work of making things whole. A good friend of mine just published a book along with me 
um, Zach Elliott, his book called Now I See, he has a beautiful picture of shalom. So I'm going to read it to you guys. He writes, Shalom is the future, a new day. Reconciliation is the seam, the moment when evening gives way to morning. Picture the fabric of reality, shredded and torn by all that violates shalom. Can you see rips where the broken has invaded and disrupted the good? And then, can you also see how that fabric may yet be woven back together? Imagine a seam woven into the fabric, mending the torn places with one stitch at a time. That is the vision of the future we participate in. Shalom restored, all things mended, all things woven together and whole. Seams are the early evidence of things being set right. And reconciliation is the early morning of shalom. Reconciliation is the first spreads of the light of dawn. That's what it is. And Zach likes to talk about living life at the seams, at those seams where the broken meets the good and where something can be mended. And what, what would it be like to live life at those places where redemption can be woven in, where mending can happen one stitch at a time, right at the dawn? That's what I picture when I think of peacemaking, and that's where I want to live. That's where I pray we all want to live, because that's where we are called to live. It is. So today we're going to look at a story of a woman who lived there, right at the seams, right at the place where the broken and the good come together. And Abigail lived a long time before Jesus, of course. But as we've learned about the Bible, every story whispers his name. And Abigail points straight to the heart of Jesus in her story, okay, because she lived life at the seams. So we're going to look at her story, and we've got to set the stage about what's going on in the life of David, because he's an important character in this story. Currently, at this time, David is on the run from King Saul. Now, this is after he kills Goliath, after David kills Goliath, before he becomes the king of Israel. He spent seven years running from King Saul, who was trying to kill him over and over. Now, at first, Saul accepted him in, and he was in the palace playing instruments. But Saul gets super jealous of David because all the people are singing David's praises, so he multiple times tries to kill him, and David ends up on the run from Saul, right? So this story picks up during that seven years where he is basically living like a nomad out in the fields, trying to not be killed by the king. And here's something interesting to note. The chapter that comes right before this story is the chapter where David spares Saul's life. He spares his life. He's chosen the way of peace, the way of shalom, he does not kill Saul when he has the opportunity to do so. And then the very next story is this one. So let's check it out in 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 2. There was a wealthy man from Maon who owned a property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. The man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity be to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your men, and they will tell you this is true. 
So, would you be kind to us? Since we have come at a time of celebration, please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend, David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. So basically, David's out in the fields. What's happened is that Nabal's men, very rich man, who was crude and mean in all his dealings, by the way, who was out there, his sheep were in the field, and David's men did not mess with them. They actually protected them, some translations say. And so David is coming at the, this feasting time asking for provisions because they're living as nomads, and he's, they've made friends with them out in the fields, and so now he's asking for provisions. And what does Nabal do? Let's look. He says, who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. All right. So first of all, that was a pretty rude response from Nabal. He's like, nope, who are you? You're getting nothing. But what was David's response? Like, whoa there, buddy, strap on your sword. You're going to go kill the guy because he won't give you some food. David has not chosen to stay in the way of peace, right? He just spared Saul's life. But this guy offends him, and he is off. He is off to war with 400 of his men and his swords, right? No mercy for Nabal. All right, back to the story. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day in and night, day and night they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she did not tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming towards her. David had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. David is goaded for the slaughter. Like, he's going to kill every last man standing because this guy has offended him that much. And this is the moment where Abigail comes onto the scene, right? She meets up with David right here. But she has another plan. So, back to the story. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man, but please don't pay attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young man, men you sent. Now, my lord, as surely as the lord lives and you yourself live... Since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. 
Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have done nothing wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all he promised and made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank you for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I have heard what you said. I will not kill your husband. Now that's a pretty amazing shift that David experiences in those few moments, right? Abigail shows up as a peacemaker and her plan works because David completely receives everything that she's saying and does not carry out his plan to kill Nabal. So what happens from here, Abigail goes back to Nabal, tells, oh no, actually she doesn't tell him that day because he's in the middle of throwing a party and he's super drunk, so she can't even tell him what's going on. He passes out he wakes up the next morning, she tells him what happened, then he has a heart attack and ends up dying anyways like 10 days later. So that's the sad story of Nabal. And interestingly enough, when David finds out that Nabal died and Abigail's single, he wants to marry her and she says yes. So there's that that goes on, but we're not going to go into all that today. But it's a pretty crazy story about this woman who decided to be so brave and go stand in front of David and his army and offer peace. She offered peace, right? So, wholeness comes to this broken circumstance because Abigail chose to be a peacemaker. So what does this mean for us? What can we learn from this story? If we stop to think for a minute, there are places in our lives, in our relationships, in our communities, in our world, that are broken, that are broken, where the, the broken has invaded the good, right? And we... As Christ followers, as Christ dwelling in us, are called to bring shalom. We are called to participate in bringing peace. We are called to help make things whole. So what can we learn from the story of Abigail? I think we can learn quite a lot, actually. And I hope that we don't just listen to this story and be like, oh, that was nice, you give him a present, and that's great for them. Like, we got to look a little bit deeper because this story points to shalom. So, we're going to look at some things that we can learn. You guys, I'm going to tell you something. I, at this point in the message, after reading that much scripture, I always try to like put in a funny story. Like, we need a funny personal story here because that's love scripture. People need to laugh. I, I feel like I'm running out of funny stories, so you guys are going to have to like um, send me some or something or create some funny experiences for me because I'll, I'll have you know, and I might have told you this before, uh, my children have rated me the lowest on the silly scale in our entire family. Apparently, there's a silly scale. I'm the lowest b below, like, the dog, below, like, their grandparents. I'm the least funny, least silliest person in our family. However, I did bring this up to tell you that I got a boost on the silly scale the other day because we were eating dinner as a family, and 
I was just calmly eating my food and there was a fly that had come in from the out of doors and it was dive bombing the children and they were screaming because they really dislike bugs. And I was being all calm or whatever. And so, but I'm also like, I'm kind of a fly ninja because I grew up in Michigan and in Michigan there's a lot of flies and you gotta kill them because they just invade. So I can like kill flies with my bare hands. So I was sitting there ready to kill a fly and it came over to me and so I got it, I smashed it. But unfortunately, I didn't think about what I was doing after I killed it. So I smashed it and it like literally fell right into my food, which I had worked so hard to cook this beautiful steak dinner and it fell right in there and it was like still squirming. And so I, w I screamed, I screamed like a girl, which I don't usually scream. And the girls thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever seen and upgraded me on the silly scale. So this is my good story of the week. That's all the funny I got. All right, back to peacemaking. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm, I'm getting upgraded. They think I'm, they think I'm more funny every day. They do. All right, peacemaking. We're going to learn from Abigail today. All right, peacemaking, I think we're going to pull out some things that it requires. And the first thing that I think we see that peacemaking requires is action. Action, right? Not passivity. A lot of times we think about peace we think about being peace or making peace, and we think, oh, well, I, that, that's the pacifist. Like, that's, like, not action. Peace means don't take any action, right? But when the servant comes to Abigail and tells her what's going on, the Bible says she wastes no time. She wastes no time. That's the first thing she says. She immediately begins packing the supplies, and she heads out to meet David. Making peace takes action, right? And sitting out the fight, when the Spirit of God has moved within you to engage, the situation will not bring peace. It will not bring peace. Peacemaking takes action. And Abigail said yes to that movement of the Spirit of God within her, and she took action. So I'm going to leave us with some questions for ourselves with each of these points today. So the question for this one is, for us as peacemakers, where is God moving in you to take action to restore peace. Where is God moving in you to take action to restore peace? Number two is responsibility. Responsibility. Now, this one's a little tricky because honestly, this situation is not her fault, right? She didn't do anything to cause this. She didn't, she didn't have anything to do with her husband's response, and she certainly didn't have anything to do with David's, like, inflammatory response. But what does she not do here? She does not blame her husband. She does not blame David. She goes to him, and she takes responsibility for the situation, right? She says, she asks for forgiveness. She asks him for forgiveness, and she takes responsibility because it is her lands and her family and her community that he's coming after. So she's going to take some ownership there and not get stuck in blame because she could have done that. She could have done that totally against her husband or against him, but she didn't do that. She takes the responsibility not for having caused the problem. No, that's not what we're doing. We're not picking up someone else's blame. What she takes responsibility for is to restore shalom. She takes responsibility to make peace. That's the responsibility that she takes. So the question for us is, what responsibility can you take for the violation of shalom in your life? Because that's what brokenness is, a violation of shalom. 
What responsibility can you take for the brokenness in your life? Not about causing it, but about restoring it. Where can you take responsibility? The next one here that we see from Abigail is validation. Validation. Instead of vindication, right? Because she doesn't try and explain Nabal's positions, which she totally could. Like, they were a very wealthy and powerful family. She could have tried to explain, this is why he said that, blah, blah, blah. But she doesn't do that. She validates his anger. She sees how angry he is. And as we know how to do here at Element, we do this validation thing pretty well. Like, that's what she gives to him, right? She speaks all of the things that he needs to hear to know that he has heard, that he has seen, that this anger is witnessed. That's what she does. That's what her words mean to him. And it stops him in his tracks, right? Because validation is so much more important than vindication when you're trying to make peace. Validation. So the question for us as peacemakers what validation can you offer to someone who is experiencing brokenness? David was experiencing brokenness in this situation. And all we see is this little bit of like, well, Nabal won't give me any supplies. So I'm going to go kill him. That seems like, well, it's hard to validate that brokenness. But when we look at the whole picture of David's life and what's happening to him and being on the run and everything, like, he's pretty broken. He's pretty broken in this season. And she is able to see that and to validate it, and to show him that it matters. It matters. And that's what broken hearts need if they're going to find peace, right? So what validation can you offer to someone who is experiencing brokenness? Next, we see honor. Honor. She honors him greatly. Maybe a little extra flowery, right? But she gives him genuine honor, not only with her words, but also with her actions, right? The gift that she brings him, it's not just a bribe. It's not just a payoff, like, here, take your stuff and don't kill us. It is an honoring gift that she is giving to him, as was the custom in those days. She brought him honor. And then not just with the gift, but with her words. And she looked for ways to make those words genuine. She even went back about how God has protected him and how he'll take down his enemies like with a slingshot. She's calling back to real stories in the life of David because she's genuinely choosing to honor what she sees in his life. She's genuinely choosing to call out the good that she sees of God protecting him and sustaining him and calling him to a bigger purpose. She sees it and she speaks it. She speaks the good about his character, right? And again, it stops the anger, it stops the violation of shalom in its tracks because she chooses honor. Now, she could have criticized him. He was not perfect. There were negative things that she could have said, but she did not choose that because in the work of making peace, she knew that the words he needed to hear were words of honor. Honor. So the question for us, what honor can we genuinely give to those we may first want to criticize or to those who, with whom we are trying to restore shalom? What genuine honor can we give? We certainly don't want to give a false honor. That will not restore shalom. But there are ways to genuinely honor our enemies. Always. Because they're beloved sons and daughters of God. Right? Honor. I can promise you this. Criticism will never lead to shalom. Never. Right? Next, we see 
humility, for sure. Humility versus pride. She could have been pretty prideful here. She was a powerful woman. This was a powerful man with plenty of armies. I mean, I'm not sure David would have just shown up and killed them all. Like, there would have been a great battle, really, is what would have happened, right? But she did not pick up any pride. She laid down pride for the sake of peace. And she showed up with humility. She fell at his feet, laying down her pride to help restore peace. So the question for us, where is pride getting in the way of peace? Where is our pride getting in the way of our peace? Then we see courage. Courage. Now the whole thing was pretty courageous, obviously. She's going out there to stop this guy with 400 men. The whole thing was pretty courageous, but what I'm talking about here was the courage to speak the truth. Because did you catch that in what she said? She didn't only just bring him gifts and honor him and validate him and blah, blah, blah. No, then she turned the conversation to say, if you do this, you will carry the shame of murder in your heart for the rest of your life. And you don't want to do that, David. Don't, don't do that because it'll break you. And she calls him out on that very bravely. She could have died for that sentence. He could have killed her right then and there because whatever, uh, she gave him plenty of validation and honor, but then she spoke the truth. And she said it in a way of compassion and grace so that he was willing to hear it, but it was the truth that he needed to hear because when he responds to her, that's what he said, praise God that he has stopped me from committing murder, right? He hears the truth that comes after all of these other things the action and the responsibility and the validation and the honor and the humility and then the courage to speak the truth, right? She spoke boldly and truly because that is what peacemakers do. They speak the truth with kindness and with courage. So the question for us then, what truth could contribute to the dawn of shalom in my life? And when will I be brave enough to say it? What truth could contribute to the dawn of shalom in my life? What truth could bring some peace to a broken place in my life? And when will I be brave enough to say it? There's another piece here. These six are really good. These six we see from this story And these six brought about shalom in a beautiful way. But there's another piece, and without this piece, I don't think it probably would have worked out. And I wouldn't want to try it without this piece. The last one is the wisdom from God. Right? Because we could do all these things with a certain enemy, but if we weren't being led by the Spirit of God in us, it may not go according to plan, right? If we're trying to muster honor, we're trying to muster humility, we're trying to muster truth that we're pretty sure is true, but it's not coming from the Spirit of God in us, then we're probably going to cause as much breaking as we are mending. That's probably what's going to happen, right? Because true shalom only comes from the source of peace. It only comes from him. And that is why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, and they will be called children of God. Because it is the spirit of Christ in us that gives us that wisdom to do all of these things in the way of Jesus, right? Because Christ came 
so that his spirit can dwell in us because we are the work of shalom. We are the work of the one true narrative of redemption. James chapter 3 verse 17 says, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Peace-loving, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, the fruits of good deeds, no favoritism, always sincere. Plant seeds of peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. This is what we are called to do. This is what the beloved sons and daughters are called to be in this world. Bringers of peace, menders living life at the seams where the good meets the broken and putting those stitches back in. That's literally what we're called to do, right? So question for us then, what does God have to say about the broken places in your life? Because if we don't know that, if we haven't asked him, then we can do all these other things, but it's, we're not sourcing it from the source of peace. So the question we have to come to before we really try to engage the work of peacemaking is what does God have to say about the broken places in our lives? So as we leave here today, I encourage us to think on that. I encourage us to ask him, to take some time in the stillness and ask him, because he'll answer. He will. So remember what happened to David before this story? He spared Saul's life, right? Then this story happens. He wants to come after Nabal. Abigail makes peace. Do you know what the very next chapter is after this story? It's another chapter of David sparing Saul's life again. The work of peacemaking that Abigail did in this story wasn't just for her story. It wasn't just for this encounter because it, it was putting those seams back into the mending of wholeness and David carried that into his next story and chose to spare Saul's life yet again, right? It extended beyond her because that's the work of making peace. When I think of peacemaking, I think of opening up a space of sacred ground and inviting others to join me there. That's what Abigail did. She met David where he was, and she opened up this space of sacred ground and went through all of these beautiful steps of making peace and then just invited him, like, will you join me here? I've seen you. I've heard you. I've validated you, I've honored you, and I've been brave enough to say true things. Will you join me here in this space of peace? That is the beautiful work of making peace, right? It was a third way. Not a way of fighting, not a way of fleeing, but a third way. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this terminology of the third way. It's contemplative terminology, so of course I love it. But to me, it's just a way of expressing that sacred space of shalom. Richard Rohr writes this. The contemplative stance is the third way. We stand in the middle. 
neither taking the world on from another power position, nor denying it for fear of the pain it will bring. We hold the hardness of reality and the suffering of the world until it transforms us. Knowing that we are both complicit in evil and can participate in wholeness and holiness. And once we can stand in that third spacious way, neither directly fighting or fleeing, we are in the place of grace where genuine newness can come. This is where creativity and new forms of life and healing emerge. The place of grace where genuine newness can come. That is the way of peace. This is what I envision when I think of us as peacemakers. The Bible talks about in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. And Jesus goes on through a whole list of blessing. And you remember last week, Benjamin talked about that word blessed. It means happy. It means happy. There is joy in this work of making peace. There is joy in this work of holding, opening and holding this space of grace where newness can come, right? Jesus talks about standing as a city on a hill, as light in the darkness. And that's what I picture, like standing, this gra- standing on this ground of redemption and calling others towards it with action and responsibility and validation and honor and humility and courage, all fueled by the spirit of Christ in us. That is the place of peace. So Bobby can come up. We're going to sing one last song. It's a song of affirmation of joining in the work of Christ. It's a song of affirmation of seeing this wholeness that he came to bring and agreeing with it and agreeing to participate in it. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is our birthright and our calling, right? To stand on the ground of redemption and to take action and call others toward it and to take responsibility for making peace and to validate the brokenness of others and to honor other stories and other hearts and to lay down our pride and to courageously speak truth led by the source of peace himself. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this invitation to participate in the way of shalom. We thank you for this invitation to to see you, to see your work in maybe a little bit different way and to ask ourselves the question of what this wholeness can look like for us. What does this wholeness look like in our lives, God? And how can we participate in it? How can we make peace. So God, I pray as we think on these questions that we asked today that you would bring us answers. God, don't just let this be a quick story that goes in and out of our hearts, but let us stop here and let us think here for a moment about what you're asking of us. We trust you for answers, so we're asking you today, Jesus, to help us make peace.